We're beginning a five-week series in the book of Philippians called Shine Like Stars, which is language right out of that book. As Paul challenges the congregation there to live like stars set out in a sky that's full of darkness. So that's the challenge over these next five weeks is a call for us as Christians to live and shine like stars in the midst of a world that doesn't know what to do with light sometimes. So over the next few weeks, I encourage you to open to the book of Philippians and do your personal study there. Uh, We'll begin in chapter 1 this week and won't hit every single verse, but we'll be hitting a lot of the themes in this book over the next several weeks. Now before we get into the message this morning, I do want to address uh, some situations that have arisen this week in Charleston. And I know that many of you have been aware and seen what has gone on. And I want to begin our time this morning with a time of silence as we acknowledge, as we pray for the families of those who are grieving loss, for those who have lost loved ones and are now in a congregation without brothers and sisters in church. There are brothers and sisters as well. And so let us spend a moment in quiet prayer, and then I'll bring us back together in prayer in just a moment. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we worship you, and we also lament and cry out to you. We don't understand why this kind of tragedy happens. We know that this is a world full of sin. But God, we are reaping the burden, the the consequences of a history, God, that sometimes we have not confessed, that we have not brought before you and repented of, God. God, we mourn beside those who are grieving today, and we grieve with them. And God, I pray in the days to come that we can find ways as the body of Christ to reject the racial prejudice that has been a part of our past in this country, that we can find ways to partner and join hands, that we can find ways to heal and not to kill. God, this morning we cry out for justice. We cry out for your mercy and your grace. We cry out for your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we lift this prayer to you in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. Well, for centuries, there has been one key motivator that has motivated people in so many different ways, possibly more than many of the other motivations that we have. Tyrants have used it for their purposes. Preachers have used it for their purposes. Doctors have tried to defeat it. Health experts and nutritionists have tried to help us avoid it. Youths have denied it. And many of us have feared it. But few of us have escaped it. In fact, there's only two that Scripture tells us about who did escape it. That's Enoch and Elijah. The motivation I'm talking about this morning is the motivation of death. Welcome to Greenville Oaks. We're glad to have you this morning. Happy Father's Day. 
I can describe this motivation because it has created so much problem in our world, and we've dealt with it this week, have we not? See, many of us live with the fear of death, and it forces us to do things we would never do without it. And as we get into the book of Philippians, and as we delve into chapter 1, we deal with a guy named Paul who is dealing with death at his doorstep. He's in prison as he writes this letter. And I think it's important for us to understand the context of Philippians before we enter into this book and begin to understand exactly what Paul is trying to say. See, Philippians is a letter, and we would do well to remember that. It is not a book that's written to us. These words are not words written to us in the 21st century. Yes, they're inspired, and yes, God continues to inspire and use these words to shape our community. But if we forget the fact that this is a letter that was sent to a specific people in a specific context dealing with specific matters, I think we're prone to misread this text. Have you ever thought about what the Bible really is? The Bible is a a group of letters, a group of books that were written by people to specific situations, to specific communities for specific reasons. Inspired, yes. But if we forget that context that they're written to, sometimes we misread them as words just written to us and we forget what their original purpose was. So here's a question to consider about Philippians. When Paul was writing these words to the Christians at Philippi, do you think that he had Christians in the 21st century in America in mind when he wrote those words? America, what is that, right? And our guess, kind of reading some of Paul's letters, is that he thought this thing was going to end far before the year 2000 came around. I think he was anticipating an end to things that hasn't come yet. Now, the answer is no. He didn't expect that we would be reading these words. And we forget that when we snoop into his mail in the Bible And we forget the context of these things. I think it's vital, and I want to spend a little bit of time letting you know about the community he writes to, a little bit about Paul himself. Because the the truth is, if he were to walk into some of our homes and see Philippians 4.13 on our walls, he might be a little creeped out by that. I mean, there's, there's, for instance, there, there were letters that Holly and I wrote to each other when we were dating And we still have those letters, and we probably need to get rid of them before our kids get to a certain age. And some of you have written those letters too. I would be creeped out if somebody 2,000 years from now had that on their wall, the letter that I wrote to her. And I say all this not to say this doesn't apply to us. It does apply to us, but the only way we can read it responsibly and apply it to our lives is to realize the distance that we have from these words and what Paul is trying, trying to address when he writes this book to a group of Christians. Now, many of you love this book. This is one of my favorite books. I just want to ask a raise of hands. How many of you, Philippians is your favorite book in the Bible? There are a few who are out there. There were more in first service as well. And I want you to see that this, this church that he's writing to comes out of a context. In fact, the book of Acts tells us how this church gets planted. But a little bit about Paul. Paul, as many of you know, was a guy who was a Pharisee. He was a persecutor of Christians. In fact, he oversaw the death of of Stephen. Many other Christians probably as well. And one day he was on a road to a city called Damascus, and he was going to persecute more Christians, when all of a sudden this bright light shone around him, and Jesus showed up to him, the resurrected Christ. And he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, if Jesus were to show up to you and say that, I don't know what your thought would be, but it would scare me a little bit, and I think it scared Paul. But in this context, he receives this word, and 
And some of us, man, if we were to have visions, we would question and say, what did I eat? That must have been something wrong. But Paul takes this to heart and he changes his entire life because of this encounter he has on the road to Damascus. So Paul continues on and he he joins with these two guys, Silas and Timothy, on one of his missionary journeys. He's going to plant churches in major cities in the Roman Empire. This is in the first century. And he comes across this community of people in Philippi. He goes into the city, and and the first day he shows up, uh, he shows up at the river to pray. Maybe this is a place that some of the Jews came together. We don't know exactly, but he finds this woman named Lydia in that town. Lydia is an interesting story. She's a dealer in purple cloth, which means she would have been wealthy at the time. But, But how he ended up here is fascinating. If you have your Bibles, open to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, I want to start reading uh, in verse 9 to briefly just kind of tell you about how he got here. He was originally planning to go to Asia before he showed up at Philippi, but something happened that changed his path. Acts chapter 16, verse 9. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So Luke is writing this story from firsthand account. He probably was there with this scene, and they get this word, some kind of vision. It seems like Paul's always having visions, right? But he gets this vision, go to Macedonia, and Macedonia is where Philippi is. And so in the verses that follow, we see what happens. Like I said, he, he meets Lydia, and not only is Lydia converted to follow Jesus, her whole household comes and is baptized as well. After that scene, they continue on, and a couple days later, we're not sure exactly the time frame, In Philippi, he comes across this slave girl who has a gift from a spirit. Now, we think it's probably an evil spirit based on what happens, but this gift is that he's, this this slave girl is able to tell the future. And you better believe her owners are using this gift, right? They're making money off of her and the gift that she's been given. So Paul comes across her and sees this and realizes he needs to cast this spirit out of her, and he does it. And guess what the slave owners think about that? Their cash cow is gone. So they throw the city into an uproar, and Paul is thrown into prison. But what's amazing is this slave girl, she becomes a follower of Jesus. And what happens is he goes into jail, and he doesn't have a pity party for himself. Instead, they start singing songs. At midnight, they're singing hymns, Paul and his friends. And there's this earthquake that breaks loose, and the doors to the jail open. And the jailer's responsible for these people. And so the jailer's about to take his own life because he knows if he doesn't, somebody else will. But Paul says, no, don't do that. We're actually here. We're all accounted for. You don't need to kill yourself. And you know who becomes a Christian as a result of that? The jailer becomes a Christian. So here you've got this community of followers that starts with a woman named Lydia who tells her household, and then a slave girl who had a spirit that Paul casts out of them. And then you've got this other jailer who was about to take his own life. This is a messed up church to start out. That's, That's not how you start a church, right? But it's how God chooses to. As the story goes on, we read more about a God who continues to be involved in these people. And that jailer, it's just amazing, these people who launched this church. And Paul loves this church. And some of the other letters he writes, he talks about the church at Philippi. He tells the church at Corinth, he says, this is a generous people, far more generous uh, than they even have the capacity to give for. He loves this church. And so when he writes this letter, it's not a group of strangers he's writing to. He's writing out of his love for these people. And there's this guy named Epaphroditus who comes to greet Paul while he's in prison. Probably in Rome is the best guess that I can see. And he's in Rome and he's waiting on what's going to happen. And this guy named Epaphroditus comes from the church at Philippi to send him a care package and encourage him. 
And I'm just guessing that in that dialogue, that at some point, Epaphroditus told him about some of the struggles that were going on. I'm guessing he talked about two women that were having a struggle, Euodia and Syntyche. We'll come back to that story in a few weeks. I'm guessing he told about some other things, but, but this is what we find when we come to the stories about Paul who loves this church, and this church loves Paul. And when he begins his letter, he begins with a greeting that is a common greeting for Paul. He says, grace and peace. Grace and peace. Now, grace was this kind of word to the Gentiles, a greeting of sorts. It was a common greeting in that day. So when he says that word, the Gentiles hear that. But peace, that's a word that's meant for the Jewish people. The word shalom in the Hebrew is the background of that. And so when he comes to these communities, he's not saying, hey, build a church for Jews over here and a church for Gentiles. He's saying, no, grace and peace, you guys are coming together. He brings those words together in concert to remind them that they're to be one in Christ Jesus. He says a prayer that you can get to later in the week. But I want to drop down to verse 12, which is the beginning of the heart of the letter. Remember, as we read this, he's addressing specific concerns, a specific community. He's in prison. And the guess I have is that there's probably some who are discounting Paul because he's in prison. Maybe some are saying he's done something wrong. Why does he end up in prison everywhere he goes? And and Paul answers all of that here in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 says there, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So again, Paul's not throwing a pity party at all. What he's saying is, hey, these chains, you don't have to be ashamed of them. I'm not. It's actually advancing the cause of the gospel. And he says, look, I'm in Rome. There's these magistrates around, these jailers. You know a story about a jailer, right? This has worked out before. Like there's this jailer and all these people, they they are captive audience for me to get to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a great deal. And then he says, hey, and the church at Rome that's around me, they are emboldened by my faith. They see me. They know what I've done. They see that I'm in prison and what I'm doing. This is all good for the gospel. And though he's a bit unsure about his future, after all, Nero is the emperor. And if you know anything about Nero, you know he ought to be afraid of his future. He has no doubt about the future of the gospel. He's not concerned about himself. He's not saying, hey, why don't you send help? Why don't you write a letter in my defense so you can bail me out of this place? If I were writing a letter, that's what I would have done. Hey, if you people really care about me, then speak a word. Do something to get me out of here. But instead, Paul says, no, what's more important than if I get out of here, if I get out of here is if the gospel gets out of here. And that's what God continues to do. See, Paul isn't concerned with himself. He's concerned with the gospel. And if revival is to happen in the 21st century in North America, it will happen because we as a people are not afraid of what happens to us and fearful of what happens to us, only concerned with what happens with the gospel of Jesus Christ continuing to advance in this place. And I don't know about you, I want to see revival in this day. And I'm not talking about a revival that sees ourselves at the center of power, that finds politics as the way to get back in and maneuver our way. Power and control is not the way of the gospel. The way of the gospel will be a people who are willing to go to prison even, and to speak to jailers, to go to the riverside and to meet Lydia, to go and find the slave girls who have spirits that need casting out, and to start a church with those people. That's what Paul does when he comes into the city. So as Paul's trying to stay in prison, we live in an era where that's not the way it is. We saw the headlines a couple of weeks ago, didn't we, in upstate New York. 
People who would do anything they can to break out of prison so they can live free lives. But Paul is so free, it doesn't matter where he is. He's fine to stay in prison as long as the gospel advances. And everyone is emboldened in their faith as a result of it. But he takes all of this to a whole new level as he writes in verse 20. I want to keep reading. Paul writes, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the, body, in, the, in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that uh, I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. I think this is the one of the most incredible passages of Scripture, what he writes. It's that line where he says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I mean, just think about that for a moment. Could you get to a place where you could say that exact phrase? Because Nero did awful things to Christians. The historians tell us about Nero. He was a bloodthirsty guy. There was a fire that happened in Rome around his reign. And he actually blamed this fire on the Christians, even though the Christians didn't commit that fire. It was actually he who probably started that fire with some of his cronies because he wanted to burn down the city so he could build it up even better than it was before. You know what Nero did? He actually set Christians on fire and would put them in in his gardens and hang them from uh, up high so that the light would shine in the midst of the darkness and the Christians would light his gardens. This is the kind of person Nero was. He was ruthless. And Paul is in prison underneath this guy. What kind of chance does he have to get out of this still? And what Paul's response to all of this, and I love it, is, you know what? If you kill me, it's all good, Nero. Because I get to go be with Jesus. And if I get to go on living and you release me, Nero, it's all good. Because I get to go on preaching the gospel. Do whatever you want, because the gospel's going to advance no matter what happens. But what it would be like to live a life that got to that place. That is incredible, is it not? I mean, what can Nero do to a guy like that? What do you do when you're in power? And tyrants for years have been using the fear of death to get people to do things, right? I mean, think about Hitler and all the people that because of their being afraid to die did things they would have never done otherwise because the fear of death leads us to do things we wouldn't do in any other context. Or think about other situations in history, people who've made confessions that they don't believe, but they make those confessions because if they don't, they would be killed. Think about all these kind of things that we do in courtrooms across America, play host to lying defendants in certain situations because they know that on the other side might be death if they confess what they actually did. The fear of death leads us to do all kinds of things we would otherwise not do because we want more than anything to go on living. And sometimes we protect our lives at the cost of the gospel. But here is Paul who says this incredible line, for me to live is Christ. What can Nero do to this guy? He must be so frustrated by Paul, right? If he kills him, that's just going to sprinkle the blood more for this movement to go on. And if he lets him live, then Jesus is going to get preached more. Now death is a motivator for all kinds of things. But I love Paul's response. Whatever you want to do, the gospel's going to last past the Roman Empire. And if they had said that in that era, who would have believed it? But here we are. You know what we name our dogs? (laughs) Nero. And we name our kids Paul, don't we? 
It's amazing to think what God has done. And, and Paul believes in this so much that when he writes 1 Corinthians in, in, in chapter 15, verse 5, this is what he writes. He taunts death. He's like, death, where, oh, death is your victory. Where, oh, death is your sting. Who taunts death but only a person who's already died? who's already given up their life, who's, who's, who's taken on the cross, who's seen Jesus. Yes, he's killed Christians, and now he's a dead person who's been raised to life in Christ. Think about it this morning. Uh, this question is something I want to leave with you today. What would it take for you to deny Jesus? What would be the cost to your life that someone could pay you that you would give up this belief? Because most of us have a price, if we're honest. Some Christians would deny Christ if it meant just giving up their retirement account and what they've built up to secure themselves. And if that sounds crazy, there's a story in Scripture about it, right? The rich young ruler. Jesus says, give up your wealth. Come join me in my kingdom. And, and he walks away sad, having instead taken his idol instead of Jesus. Some Christians would deny Christ if believing him, in him meant that they were to move to a third world country. If God said, this is my call for you, they would say, you know, I'm much more comfortable here than following that calling. Some Christians would deny Christ if it meant prison or if it meant possible death. So what is your price? What would it cost for you to give up this commitment that you've made to Jesus? See, we live in a place where it's socially advantageous to follow Jesus. And I know there's all kinds of rumors about how that's going to go away and, and how we're worried about that. But my question isn't if that's the best thing or not. The question is, if that day comes, what do we do in that moment when we're faced with that choice? Are we going to, like Paul, say, hey, t- to live is Christ, to die is gay, it doesn't matter, you know? Or, or are we so easy to give that up if things get difficult? But here's the deal. If you decide to follow Jesus, even with the threat of death, if you make that decision that that's where you're going— then all those other little choices that we make along the way, they become a whole lot easier, don't they? To make that decision at the forefront. And this is what baptism is actually all about. Like baptism is this ritual. And so many of you in the room have, have, have made this decision. You've been baptized. When you did that, what you were doing is you were going into the waters. You were dying to your old self. And then you were being raised to new life. It's as if you're saying, hey, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, there's nothing to fear because in the end, God has won the victory and resurrection in Jesus is going to happen for the rest of us. So we die to our old selves in baptism. When we were raised to life, there's nothing that Nero or any other tyrant or any other person can really take from us if we take our baptisms seriously. And that's why Paul can say, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. And like Paul, if we've been baptized in his name, we can also taunt death and say, where, oh, death is your victory? Where is your sting? And as I said, once you make that decision, those smaller decisions become so much easier. And maybe that's where we're living today. Most of you aren't going to probably live in a time where you've got to choose to follow G- Jesus or die. That's not going to be the option. So I want to speak to you, not just to the situation in Philippi. Paul's got that he's writing to his church about. I want, to, I want to take you here, Greenville Oaks, and I want to ask you the question that you might have to struggle with. And maybe it is death. Maybe for some of you it will be that reality. But more likely, some of you walked in this morning with a lot of stress and anxiety about some things going on in your life. I don't know what that stress might be, but I'd like you to fill in that blank right now. What is it right now that you're thinking, you know, worst case scenario, this is going to go real bad. 
What is it in your life that you, you come in and it's just, it's just your, your shoulders are weighed down because this is what you worry about day and night? Some of you may be having to make some decisions about your children right now. They, they've, they've grown up and, and you've been supporting them, but you know at some point that if you continue to support the habits and the lifestyle that they're living in, that it's not going to be for their good. They're going down a, a road of ruin. And that's a hard decision to figure out. Are you going to let them keep staying at home? Are you, are you going to continue to fund that drug habit that you know is going on? Like There are hard decisions that some of you are making around your children right now. But for some of you, it's not that. Some of you are dealing with your parents right now. They're coming to the end of their life. And their quality of life is, is, is not what it once was. And boy, that's a hard place to be in, isn't it? To have to make those decisions about retirement centers and about you know, life or death matters that some of you have walked through with your families. Some of you are having to make some hard decisions right now about jobs and what your future looks like and, and what it looks like to move forward in the calling of Jesus. And some of you are dealing with other things that you could fill in the blank with. So my question this morning to you is, what if you were to make a decision this morning to drop and get rid of and, 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 and cast that anxiety, that stress, that fill in the blank over to God today? And here's what you need to do in order to do that. So many of us worry about these things and it's these unknown realities. And so we worry and we have anxiety. And some of us are more prone to that than others. But what I would encourage you to do this morning is whatever you fill the line is, I want to ask you to to admit what is the worst case scenario that can happen. And I want you to name that worst case scenario. Some of us don't go there because it's hard to say those words, right? It's easier to worry and not get to that place where we realize this is what could happen. But when you name that worst case scenario, what you begin to realize is that the worst case scenario is not any worse than the good news that Jesus has to bring in your life and the promises he makes about being with you through it no matter what. Now, I'm not saying those aren't hard things. I don't want to belittle those things and those anxieties and stresses in your life. But some of you this morning, you need to call fears bluff. How many of you grew up with imaginary monsters under your bed? Like, I remember having that fear, right? He's either in the closet or he's under the bed. And I remember my parents coming and talking to me and being like, all right, let's go over and let's check the door. Let's check under the bed. And yeah, they, but they move every time. You know, I, I, you got those excuses as a kid, right? But at some point, what they taught me to do was to look under the bed and call fears bluff. And when I discovered it wasn't there, all of a sudden those fears began to dissipate. And a lot of you aren't dealing with monsters under your bed, but you've got some monsters in your life you're dealing with. And what I want to ask you to do today is I want you to I want you to name what that is. Because when you name the worst place it can get to, then all of a sudden you have an ability to name that, to cast those cares and those anxieties on God who can do, deal with it far better than you can. We can all confess that, right? And be able to call fear's bluff and say, God, whatever I'm fearing is not as great as the good you bring into my life. No matter what I'm fearing might happen, the peace that you promise that passes all understanding is going to be present. I don't know the future. But I know you are, are involved in that future. I know you're going to be walking beside me. I know that because I've confessed Jesus as Lord, it's all safe. That to, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I don't know what Paul would say to us this morning about all this. I've been thinking about that this week. What would he say to us in the midst of these struggles? But he says some things in the next verses I just want to read to you that may 
address your situation. Maybe something you want to take with you this week and, and keep with you. It's in verse 27. Whatever happens, and hear this, whatever happens in the situation you're playing out in your mind right now, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. Whatever happens, Paul is saying the good news in Jesus Christ is far better than the bad news you're afraid of. So no matter what happens, the call of Jesus is to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul's not just saying these words. He's living them out, isn't he? He's not afraid of what's going to happen to him. He says, if I die, it's, it's all good. If I, if I go on living, it's all good. I, I'm safe because I've, I've got the blood of Jesus covering me. I want to close with a truth that Paul writes a little bit later in his letter, and then we'll close our time today. Philippians 3 Verse 10. He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. How many of you, that's your desire? That's a hard word, isn't it? Because Paul isn't just saying, resurrect me. What he's saying is, I want to know even the sufferings that Christ suffered. But here's the deal. You will never experience resurrection in your life without death. Only dead things can be resurrected. And so we can try to evade this suffering and hope God never brings that. But the truth is the only way that resurrection happens, and it is promised it will happen in the end, the only way it happens is if we die first. So this morning, we have an opportunity for some of you to die this morning. I don't mean to be graphic, I guess, with the kids in the room, but... In a sense, that's what we do when we enter into the waters of baptism, isn't it? As we're saying to God, I, I want to live in such a way I have nothing to fear, that I can, I, I can take whatever you have to offer and it's going to go that way. And so this morning, uh, we have a baptism that's going to happen in just a minute. James uh, is going to get to take Priscilla's confession, the Brown family. But I don't want that to be the end of it, right? I mean, we could be here all day if you want to. I would love if you've been making that, thinking this is a decision you need to make. If you're ready to no longer be a slave to death. No longer let Nero or whatever tyrants going on in your life have a say. If you're ready to give that up, come forward this morning. We'll make sure the baptistry's warm for not just Priscilla, right? So in just a moment, James is going to come up. But during that time, I want to invite anyone who wants to to come and respond. If you want to go to the back and pray, if you've got something going on, maybe there's a monster in your life you need to call out, go and pray. If you want to come forward and you want to take Christ on in baptism, we would love for you to experience and be raised to new life this morning without the fear of death. Let's close with a prayer this morning, then I'll, I'll ask James and Priscilla to come on up. Father, we thank you so much that we have no reason to fear death. And God, I say that knowing that there are many that are fearing that right now, that are afraid of what the days are to come, that are afraid of the future, of, of whatever it might be in our lives. God, I pray, I pray that you would be beside them, that your spirit would guide and would comfort God, that you would help people not be afraid of death because when we give up that fear of death, all of a sudden, all these small decisions that are so hard to make become pretty easy. So God, I pray for those that right now have their monsters that they're, they're fighting. 
And I pray you would, you would come beside them, God, that you would help them realize that, that you're with them through whatever that monster might bring. And if they'll call fear's bluff, your good news is greater. So God, I thank you for all of this and, and for just the, the visual picture we're about to get, God. A reminder to all of us who've been a part of this that we're no longer alive, God, the way we were. Some of us used to be drunks in this place. Some of us used to be swindlers. We used to be idolaters. We used to be all kinds of things, God. And while we still continue to struggle on this side of baptism, God, we know that that's no longer our identity. We are one in Christ Jesus, and it's him who has bought us and redeemed us and saved us. God, this morning, we look forward to seeing Priscilla take on you in baptism. And God, through that, would you remind us that we all need to be reminded of that every single day of our death and our resurrection. God, if there's anyone else that wants to come this morning, would you prompt their hearts to do so right now? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.